The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. Funding secured. Big money backing reportedly lining up behind Elon Musk over his bid for Twitter. Call it a bullard in a China shop. One Fed head talking even more aggressive about interest rate hikes. Is the White House starting to go all in on black gold, the big new reversal it just had on oil and gas drilling on federal land? Maskless at 30,000 feet once again. Airlines changing their rules mid-flight and masks being ripped off. As a judge says, the rule is unlawful. And later, why Staten Island may just be the beginning for Amazon unionized warehouse worries. It is all happening on this busy Tuesday, April 19th. This is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, as always, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks very much for joining us on this Tuesday morning where the weather is just, I mean, Merry Christmas, everybody. It's 41 and rainy. All right, let's kick off the hour with a check on the markets and your money, see if they're looking any sunnier. Be hard not to be, and they kind of are. We are seeing stock futures maybe mixed right now, Dow up a touch, NASDAQ futures just turning negative, Ukraine saying that Russia has now entered what they call phase two of the war, and that is setting its sights on permanently retaking the eastern Donbass region of that nation. Meantime, bonds keep selling off and their yields keep going up. The 10-year yield is creeping back toward 3%. Right now, it is just under 2.9%. In the oil market, crude is hanging at 107 bucks a barrel and change. There are some real concerns now about a drop-off in supply from Libya after more issues there over protests over a major oil facility, about 300,000 barrels a day potentially at risk. Doesn't sound like a lot, but in a market this tight, everything matters. Libya is certainly something to watch in the days and months ahead. And in crypto, we are seeing Bitcoin and Ether both slightly higher right now, with Bitcoin back above 40,000. All the cryptos, you can see, are higher. Well, they're also back trading overseas after the Easter Monday holiday. Let us find out what is going on, how the trade looks, and some of your top stories. And get back to Rosanna Lockwood in our London newsroom. Rosanna. Yeah, Brian, we finally rejoined the race here, and it's been a negative open. We had four days off here in Europe for the Easter weekend. Remember, we closed lower for a second consecutive week in a row. When we closed on Thursday, we've reopened heavily in the red. The FTSE 100 down almost half a percent. I've been looking at Switzerland, trying to find a reason why we're down almost 1.9 percent. It could be that we're heavy commodities, heavy banking linked here in Switzerland. FTSE MIB down as well. Let's give you a look at fixed income here in Europe, though, because it's a similar story to what 
what you were just talking about. We've got bonds selling off, yields are hiking up. The 10-year gilt has risen to its highest level since late 2018 here in the UK. The two-year at the shorter end of that and its highest level since January 2016, mirroring what you're seeing stateside of these looming concerns about a, re a recession. If there's too much tightening, the 10-year you've already gone through, but we'll keep a look at the 10-year bund as well in Germany there at 0.9200. Again, like you've been saying, there's not much new out there, but it's this overhang of very negative factors regarding inflation, regarding monetary policy tightening, and also what is happening in Ukraine. Rosanna Lockwood in London. A lot of red on the screen there. Rosanna, good to see you. Welcome back. All right, now to some of your key business headlines happening right now, including the latest on the Twitter drama with some big money apparently ready to get behind Elon Musk and his Twitter bid. Silvana Hanau is here with that and more. Good morning, Silvana. Good morning, Brian. That's right. Well, shares of Twitter are on the move yet again this morning. This on news that Apollo Global is considering financing a potential take private deal of the social media company. Sources tell CNBC the private equity firm has already held discussions with relevant parties, but is not interested in being part of a P consortium that would acquire Twitter. Instead, any financing would likely come in the form of preferred equity. And a rough morning for Chinese tech stocks sliding in overnight trading in reaction to new regulations from Beijing, this time targeting the country's lucrative live streaming sector. Officials now banning any stream of unauthorized games on public websites. And Amazon says it will conduct a racial equity audit of its hourly employees. The move is in response to shareholders who are urging the company to provide more transparency when it comes to diversity and inclusion. The audit will be led by former U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch Bryan. More accountability for these companies. Yep, they are putting it down. Yep. All right, Savannah now, thank you very much. You got it. All right, now back to your money. And let's take a closer look at the so-called yield curve. Remember, that is the difference between interest rates, say like the 10-year bond and the two-year bond. Of course, you heard about that inversion, where the yield on the two-year went above that of the 10-year. Well, guess what? The inversion has uninverted, de-inverted. It's really widened back up with the 10-year nearly half a percent higher once again. All this is St. Louis Fed President James Bullard getting more bearish, saying while a rate hike over 50 basis points, that's a half a percent to you and I, is not his base case, he would not rule out making an even bigger rate hike at one meeting this year. I would point out that the 1994 uh, cycle uh, where we raised the policy rate 300 basis points in a year, uh, first of all, that one was successful and did set up the U.S. economy for a stellar second half of the 1990s. And in that cycle, uh, there was a 75 basis point uh, increase at one point. Um, so I wouldn't rule it out. All right. Joining us now to talk about this and more, including your money, is Main Street Asset Management Chief Investment Officer Aaron Gibbs. Aaron, good morning. I don't know. If you're a Baltimore Ravens fan as a Marylander, I don't know if you like football at all, but I'm going to make a football analogy because here's how the Federal Reserve feels to me, Aaron. The Ravens are behind 47 to 2 or 42 to 7 or whatever it is, and the coaches are finally deciding that they need to ramp up the offense with about four minutes left to go in the game. That to me feels like what the Fed is doing right now. Somehow got way behind the inflation curve, is now talking about making these deep passes 
Hail Mary type plays to come back. Do you feel like the Fed is just so far behind the curve at this point that it's going to be difficult for them to ever, you know, make it up and, quote, win the game by giving us any kind of a soft economic landing? Well, I do agree that certainly their commentary and for the past two or three weeks has been very Hail Mary-ish uh, and getting increasingly hawkish. Um, but I do believe that their actions, look just looking at the Federal Reserve, um, the Federal Reserve rarely is at a step for more than one to two quarters. I think they have so much power behind them that they will be able to catch up within a relatively short period of time. So they might go overboard. They might be doing, you know, they might make some more missteps as they've made missteps coming into it. They might make yeah. mistakes, make missteps getting us out. Um, and that could be an overcorrection. Uh, but I think the good thing is that this new Fed is a lot more responsive. Uh, and so if they see that they're making a mistake, uh, they'll pull it back rather quickly. So it's just, unfortunately, as investors, we still have to go through three to six months of pains of undercorrections and overcorrections and just sort yeah. of write it out and work with what the Fed is doing. Well, I wonder, do we? Because I'm looking at a 10-year yield, Aaron, which is just under 3%. I mean, at this rate, in a couple of days, we're going to get back above 3%. And it feels like the bond market is way ahead of the Fed or no? Do you think the bond market still has a lot of room to move if the Fed continues to be more aggressive? Yes. So I should have made that correction. I actually think the bond market is actually being fairly rational. Uh, I think it's more the equity markets that are getting more emotional. So every time there's some new hawkish comments, you know, we get that that massive sell off and the, those risk off trade versions. Um, so, yeah, I actually think the bond market has been um rather stable in that the yields have been continually going up. We haven't seen any big switches where we're seeing, you know, yields go down or, or you know, even not much flattening. It's very, it's been pretty consistent that they're slowly moving up. And that inversion is at least between the two, between the two to up to the 10 years uh, is starting to flatten. So the inversion is becoming a little less. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I think the bond market is, saying, yeah, guys, we, you know, we've, we've been through this. We know that you're going to correct it. Um, on the other side, on the equity side, I think we're seeing yeah. more of that volatility. You know, the S&P is down big this year. But, Aaron, if you break it out as you do with growth and value, the S&P growth index is just grim. It's down 13% this year. What happened overnight? Is it merely these higher bond yields that are just crushing multiples? I mean, when you look at it, it seems uh, sort of there two, there's a twofold story. I mean, part of it is these higher yields are just crushing growth types of companies. So, yeah, when you look, when you split it between value and growth, essentially value has been pretty much flat. It's down a little less than 1% year to date, but it, it just sort of hovers over this relatively straight line versus growth just on this very negative trajectory down 14% year to date. And that's what's pulling the broad markets down. Um, but on the other hand, the other part of this story is that um, it's not value industries across the board, because when you drill into value, it's very much about energy, uh, materials, uh, and utilities that are, are positive for year and really pulling up the entire index. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's not just about style. It's very much sector specific. Um, and that's what I've been advising my investors is yeah. not to just simply go into your style indices, but really drill into the individual sectors.
Yeah, it's been a rough start to 2022, especially April being traditionally a good month. But hey, April tends to look okay weather-wise, and it's 41 degrees and pouring rain outside, so anything can happen. Aaron Gibbs, Main Street Asset Management. Aaron, thank you. We'll see you soon. Take care. Yeah, folks, it is brutal out there in New Jersey and New York area. All right, bundle up. We're just getting started on this Tuesday, and when we come back, forget gasoline. What may actually be the single most inflationary thing happening in America right now? Plus, millions of dollars of crypto being targeted every day by sophisticated criminals worldwide. But the Secret Service taking on the task of cracking down on digital fraud. Eamon Javers is here with an exclusive look inside the agency's nerve center for tracking crypto. And later, your chart of the day on a stock that is down more than 10% right now. Who is that? I don't know. But I'll find out with you coming up. Stick around. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Did you know that the United States Secret Service's duty of protecting the president is not actually its only purpose? The agency is also cracking down on crypto fraud from domestic scams to international crime rings. The Secret Service reports that fraudsters are buying and selling millions of dollars in illegal digital assets. And in a CNBC exclusive, Eamon Javers spoke with the agency's top official overseeing their crypto investigations about how these criminals actually move their money. We're inside a rarely seen secure room in Washington. What is this facility we're standing in? Right now, we're standing at U.S. Secret Service headquarters within the JIOC, which is the Global Investigative Operations Center, which is our hub for our most complex and impactful uh, international cases. No longer just capturing counterfeit money rings, the Secret Service is also tracking illicit Bitcoin proceeds on the blockchain, which is the public ledger for all crypto transactions. The Secret Service is now the primary agency investigating the illicit use of digital assets. David Smith is Assistant Director of the Office of Investigations. One of the guiding principles of the blockchain is that it was a public ledger that shared and everyone with a little bit of computing power has access to it to include law enforcement. So the Secret Service isn't doing anything that wasn't the original intent of the blockchain. We're just using the same tracking and tracing mechanisms uh, that were intended. So would you say that crypto is actually more traceable than good old-fashioned cash for a criminal? In many ways it is. 
So far, the numbers are staggering. The agency has seized more than $102 million worth of crypto in 254 cases. Here, we see analysts and special agents examining Bitcoin wallet addresses. So they're just making correlations and seeing where the hotspots are, or like a heat map, if you will, to see where the illicit activity is occurring and then focusing on those areas. Because one of the things that is in the benefit of the bad guys is the volume of activity uh, that's occurring out there. Are you using the same kind of software that all the rest of us have access to? When you follow a digital currency wallet, it's no different than an email address that has some correlating identifiers. And once a person and another person make a transaction uh, and that gets into the blockchain, we have the ability to uh, follow that email address or wallet address, if you will, and trace it through the blockchain. Criminals frequently use techniques to obscure the digital money, something Smith compares to a house of mirrors. All of them exist exactly to keep law enforcement off of the bad guy's trail. Uh, They want to go into the blockchain and make as many transfers as possible so they can lose us like a an old-fashioned surveillance. Recent high-profile crypto cases cracked by the Secret Service include an international laundering operation based in Romania that targeted 900 victims across the United States and a ring of Russian-speaking cyber criminals who threatened U.S. companies with ransomware attacks. One trend seen in cases like this is the use of money mules who may unwittingly be recruited by a fraudster. So these people are just duped into moving the money. They think they're doing one thing, but they're actually doing another. Correct. And sometimes it's just a matter of trying to make a quick buck. Uh, They don't have any criminal intent. And to protect their investments, crypto criminals regularly watch the market and they convert Bitcoin into stable coins, which is pegged to an asset like a national currency. Because, you know, the criminals, hey, they're humans, too. They want to avoid uh, some of that market volatility associated uh, with some of the major coins. Interesting that they're going after stable coins because they hate that volatility. I mean, it is, it is uh, like a roller coaster ride every day watching these prices fluctuate. And the criminals hate that, too. The criminals hate that, too, because keep in mind, they're dealing with other criminals. And some of these criminals may, may apply some consequences they don't want to deal with as well. Yeah. So if your Bitcoin crashes, you have a problem if you're a You crook. may have a problem based on who you just transacted with. And Brian, criminals love cryptocurrencies because of the global nature of the coins and the ease of using them. But David Smith told me that the criminals are learning that volatility and traceability mean that cryptocurrency just isn't the ideal solution that many of them thought it would be just a few years ago, Brian. Kind of nothing is. They somehow find a way to do this. Maybe you don't want to give this away or they don't want to give it away, Eamon. But how exactly do they identify who holds some of the crypto wallets? Well, you saw some of the analysts in the JIOC, the, the operations center there, doing exactly this. They, they're using off-the-shelf commercial software, and they're using things like Chainalysis and TRM Labs uh, in order to follow the blockchain. You can see on the public ledger exactly where cryptocurrency is held and which wallet holds the stolen currency. Then the question is, can you match that wallet identity with a real-world person out there? And that's where the investigative work comes into play and all the traditional tools of investigators, including sending subpoenas to the exchanges that are U.S. law compliant, uh, and also interacting with any other known wallets. If you see a wallet that's interacting with a wallet that you've done business before, you know uh, belongs to a certain person, well, then there's your clue, and you can start reeling that back in until you can find the real-world identity of the person. Just kind of good old-fashioned detective work, it sounds like, Eamon. At the end of, even as advanced exactly as right. it is, it yep. may just come down to people. Amazing. Eamon Javers, great stuff. Really cool look inside that uh, agency. Eamon, thanks.
All right. Take care. All right. We've got a lot more to do. Still on deck. The CEO of one of the world's biggest utilities on their big wind farm plans in America. Plus, the big mid-flight moment in the skies as airline mask rules change. And instantly, many of the masks came off. More on what you need to know if you're heading to the airport. Next. Today's big number, $20 million. That was the median pay for the CEOs of the 100 largest U.S. companies by revenue last year. A new record, according to a study by research firm Equilar. That's up 31% over the prior year. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. All right, welcome back. It is earnings time. So your big money movers are back. Three key stock stories happening right now. Stock number one is Netgear, a network equipment maker, reporting preliminary first quarter results that were worse than expected Company laying some of the blame on a drop in the U.S. Wi-Fi market, as well as lockdowns in Shenzhen, China, resulting in lost revenue. Stock two is Super Microcomputer rallying. As the server and data storage company raised earnings and revenue guidance for its fiscal third quarter. And stock three is J.B. Hunt, a trucking company, topping estimates. Revenue from its intermodal business, where freight may travel by both rail, ship, and truck. Jumping nearly 30%. Inflation, not much of a headwind yet as costs grew slower than sales. Still, J.B. Hunt stock down about 15% this year. Although much of that decline has come this month, you got concerns about higher diesel costs, as well as some talk about eventually seeing a drop in trucking rates. All right, we also have some big news from the skies. After two years, the masks can come off on a plane if you want them to. A big new legal ruling throwing out the federal government's national mask mandate on airplanes and public transit. Let's get more on that and some other key headlines happening now with Francis Rivera in New York. Good morning, Francis. Brian, good morning. Yeah, the CDC's travel mask mandate was struck down by a federal judge in Florida. U.S. District Court Judge Catherine Kimball Mazel, a Trump appointee and former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, said the CDC did not have the legal authority to impose the mask mandate and that the government broke the law by doing it without first seeking public comment. The ruling immediately set off widespread changes and confusion. The TSA released a statement saying it will no longer enforce the mask mandate on public transportation and transportation hubs. Airlines, including Delta, United, JetBlue and Southwest, announced masks will now be optional on domestic flights. Uber also announced this morning that they will no longer require drivers or riders to mask up. New Jersey Transit and the MTA said they are still going to require masks. It is day 55 of Russia's war on Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia's battle for Donbass has begun. The Russians have been building up to this assault in the east after retreating from Kyiv.
Meanwhile, the Pentagon says the U.S. expects to soon begin training Ukrainians on using howitzer artillery systems. A top Trump supporter testified for over nine hours in the Capitol riot investigation. Kimberly Guilfoyle met with the January 6th committee after the panel issued a subpoena for her last month. Guilfoyle is the fiancé of Donald Trump Jr. and a former Fox News personality who worked for Mr. Trump's re-election campaign. The panel's chairman said in a statement that she, quote, apparently played a key role organizing and raising funds for the rally. NBC News has reached out to Guilfoyle's attorney for comment. And for Tuesday morning, Brian, you're up to date with the latest headlines. All right, Francis Rivera, thank you very much. All right, straight ahead. It's not apparently just in California. Now, allegations of discrimination at Tesla are turning heads on a federal level. We'll give an update on that stock ahead. Plus, attention, New Jersey Power users, the CEO of National Grid, joining us in moments on their big new wind farm plans. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow our podcast. You missed the show for any reason. We get it. It's early. You can always check us out later in the day when you're driving, throw on the AirPods, whatever. It's available on all the major podcasting platforms. It's called Worldwide Exchange. How original. Dow Futures now down. We're back right after this. Funding secured, a big new twist in the Musk Twitter drama with one private equity giant apparently eager to get in on the action. It's not just Twitter. The big new deal, one of Musk's other companies just struck with Delta Airlines. And forget gasoline. What actually may be the most inflationary thing happening right now, and it has to do with corn. It is Tuesday, April 19th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. All right, welcome or welcome back and good Tuesday morning, everybody. And if you are just waking up, let me be the first to wish you a happy Thanksgiving because it is 40 degrees and raining in New York right now. It's a beautiful fall day. I'm rolling my eyes. It is actually April, but the markets kind of feel like the weather futures. They just can't get out of their own way. Stock futures are down now across the board. They were higher when we got in this morning. NASDAQ futures down about three tenths of one percent. It just adds to what's already been a rough run for many investors, particularly in big tech. In fact, check out this little RBI, if you will, from Bespoke Investment Group. Coming into yesterday morning, the NASDAQ 100 was down year over year. It doesn't sound like a big deal, but that is the first time in 488 trading days that the index has had a negative return from the same period as a year before, nearly two-year streak. Broken like that. And it's still true, even with Monday's slight gains. The NASDAQ now down year over year. By the way, I'll add another little nugget. 145 of the S&P 500 names, they are down more than 25% or 20% rather from their 52-week highs. So 145 of the S&P 500 is technically speaking in a bear market all in about four months, folks. I've been doing this about 25 years And outside of the pandemic panic of 2020, I'm not sure I've seen a market reversal that swift, that brutal in that short of time. Wow. It's been a rough run for many equities. All right. Well, in that case, bonds, by the way, it's not just stocks, are also selling off as borrowing costs keep going up. The 10-year yield creeping back up toward 3% right now, just below that at about 2.9 and change. In the oil market, we are seeing a slight drop from the overnight highs in crude oil. 
Still about 107 bucks a barrel. Just keep an eye on 106 and change. Keep an eye on Libya. Having some output issues there as there's a force majeure declared at one of their major oil producing ports. Well, we're also watching what else shares up Twitter this morning. It is on the move yet again on news that Apollo Global is considering financing a potential takeover of the company. Sources telling CNBC the private equity firm has already held talks with relevant parties, but is not interested apparently in being part of any kind of a consortium that would actually buy the company. Instead, it would act like a bank. Apollo would just finance any kind of a deal would likely come in the form of getting back some preferred equity in exchange from the money. By the way, these private equity firms, they're starting to become banks at this point. All right, now to some of this morning's other top corporate headlines. Delta Airlines CEO Ed Bastian saying his company has begun working with, yep, Elon Musk's Starlink to possibly provide in-flight broadband internet access. Without providing specifics, Bastian says Delta has held talks with Starlink and has conducted exploratory tests of the technology. No word from SpaceX. Rounding out your Musk trifecta, federal regulators responsible for enforcing anti-discrimination laws have been looking into Tesla. The revelation coming to light in a legal battle between Tesla and the state of California over allegations of harassment and racial bias. The California Department of Fair Employment and Housing sued Tesla in February, saying the company had turned a blind eye to years of complaints from some black factory workers. And Amazon may have another union fight on its hands. Labor organizers at a fulfillment center in Bayonne, New Jersey, say they now have enough support from workers at the warehouse to hold union elections as soon as this year. To gain the right to hold an election, petitioners typically have to prove that at least 30% of staff at a location are interested in a vote. Earlier this month, an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island became the company's first American facility to unionize. Well, if you noticed, it is not just borrowing costs and gasoline that are eating more of your paycheck lately. In fact, it is costing more to eat. Literally, nearly every crop is up big in price from last year. That includes maybe the most important crop of all. That is corn. Corn, of course, not just a delicious summertime barbecue treat, but it is also an important ingredient in so many things you buy. Anything with corn syrup in it, which is a lot these days. And that also soon includes more with gasoline. President Biden allowed for expanded use of corn-based ethanol at your local gas station. And the price of corn is soaring back to levels we have not seen in a decade. That's when a terrible drought crippled crops. This time, it is really all demand and fertilizer prices. So where do we go from here with corn and other crops? Bill Baruch of Blue Line Futures Joining us now, it's not just, I think, Bill, where the absolute price is. It's kind of what I said at the top of the show or this half hour with regards to stocks. It is the absolute quickness and violence of the move higher. What do you make of it? You're absolutely right. It's been a it's been a quick move higher. You know, on the top of the show, you also said something else. 40 degrees and the weather's been a little bit of threatening. You know, so I I think this is something to really think about where you have a situation that's taking place in Ukraine 
And it really forced the rest of the world to, to have per, a perfect planting season. And now that's you know really under the microscope. And so you would not only have colder weather right now, but you have dryness in the southern plains, when, and that makes it difficult to plant wheat. So it's really underpinned prices. And I think the entire backstory is is also China. You know, you have the name you have in the in the media now. Everybody's talking about China slowing down in demand. China's not slowing down in demand. They're buying everything they can, and export sales have steadily been strong over the last week, and are expected to stay that way. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and so much of the inflation we're seeing has nothing to do with the war. In fact, we, we on Thursday, by the way, deep tease, we're going to bring back our wall of inflation that we brought actually out last April. That was a year ago we were talking about it. But some of this is, Bill. Obviously, Ukraine is a breadbasket. It's actually a corn basket with wheat and corn crops as well. As long as that horrible war is going on, is it likely that corn crop and corn prices are going to remain high? Yeah, I, I expect them to, to stay higher. And um, looking farther out, this is a situation where you not only this year's crop, and, and if you look at prices for deliver, delivery in uh, 2022, but look farther out, 2023 and 2024, there are, there's backwardation where these these prices are lower, but I expect them to eventually be much higher. So I think there's a good trade there. But at the same time, there's been a really great technical landscape. So you had the initial onset of the war where these agriculture commodities ripped higher, but they've stayed steady. They consolidated in a very healthy manner, and now they're threatening previous record highs. So the constructiveness of this move lays the groundwork for a real breakout. And I mean, yeah. $10 corn is not out of the, uh, you know, not out of the imagination at this point. Wow. You know, listen, obviously our viewers, <clears throat> they've got to pay these prices at the store. So is there some kind of trade? And listen, I always say as a for I, I used to trade chemical fertilizers in a previous life. Markets move quick. You're often trading against producers. Commodities trading is a different beast than owning stocks. I just want to simply say that. So be careful. But that aside, Bill, is there a trade that you can advise to help our clients and our viewers rather make a little bit of money? So they can pay for some of these higher prices. Well, we work with clients in, in, in several ways. On the futures side, you know, obviously, like as you mentioned, direct access to the futures markets. And to be honest, the CME has done a terrific job in recent uh, years in, in bringing out smaller contract sizes. So it's not how it was 20, 30 years ago where you, you had to put on a massive contract. You can really size positions how you'd like. So there's there's what's called a, a mini bean or a mini corn. So it's, it's a fifth of the size. So it gives clients uh, a way to access these markets in, in a, a more a feasible manner. And then also in the, uh, on the wealth management side, I, I certainly believe in a, a real asset bucket. So we have great exposure to commodities, um, everything ranging from midstream to these agriculture, um, agriculture products. So there's a number of ways to gain access to these markets in this time. Bill Baruch, Blue Line Advisors, watching corn. Wonder if we can get to 10 bucks. That would simply be insane and very, very inflationary. Bill, thank you very much. All right, coming up, your morning RBI in the White House apparently coming around to black gold. The big reversal by the Biden administration on drilling on federal lands. Plus, a first on CNBC interview with the CEO of National Grid on his company's ambitious plans to give renewable energy a real jolt right here in America. As we head to break, some of your other key headlines happening now. Shares of Zendesk climbing higher on reports of a potential sale. Possible move comes after the software company rejected a $16 billion offer from a group of private equity firms. Also watching shares of Stellantis. That used to be called Fiat. 
the parent of Peugeot, Jeep, and Fiat itself, announcing it is suspending production at its Russian plant, citing logistical challenges and the sanctions imposed on Moscow. Worldwide Exchange is back right after this. All right, welcome back. Well, remember how we talked about how it was 41 degrees and raining in New York City, and I was kind of moaning and groaning about that? Well, guess what? I just got checked. Because on your left is Peru, New York. That is right up hard against the Vermont border. And then look at Syracuse. Yep, it is snowing in both of those places. Need I let you know that we are closer to May than we are to March? 40 and raining in New York but snowing upstate. Be safe out there. Those roads look nasty. All right, it's time now for the most random but interesting thing of the day. CNBC style, as always, and this morning, it's about a big but very quiet change from the White House. They are going to allow more oil and gas drilling on federal land. That's right. The Department of Interior will put up 173 parcels for auction, totaling about 144,000 acres of taxpayer land. And while that is not a lot historically, it is something. Because remember, the White House had tried to ban new lease sales on federal land, but was partially overruled by a federal court in order to basically keep selling federal leases without this new climate policy. And that's not all that's random but interesting here. The Biden administration wants to make more money off those sales. So it's going to raise the royalty rate on the leases to 18.75% from 12.5%, about a 50% jump. So while the feds are selling more leases, they're also going to make it more expensive to drill on them, which probably sends oil companies into a tizzy. Why not? But they are also not the only ones upset at this. Environmental groups are also ticked off. Not because the royalty rate, but because there's going to be more oil and gas drilling on federal land at all. And that goes directly against the promise the president made when he was on the campaign trail. And if you did not hear much about this before, you're probably not the only one. That news dropped without a sound on Friday night, heading into the Easter and Passover weekend when nobody would be paying attention. Well, almost nobody. More drilling coming on federal lands. Random, but interesting. All right, now let's talk about energy of a different kind, and that is wind, because your next guest company is not just one of the biggest utilities in the world. It also has ambitious plans to grow even more using renewables like offshore wind right here in the United States. John Pettigrew is CEO of National Grid, a $43 billion London-based utility that also operates in New York, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island, maybe soon New Jersey offshore. John, good to have you on the program. I've been hearing a lot about this wind farm potentially off the coast of New Jersey, a state in which I live. Uh, what can you tell us about it? What, what kind of timeline would we have on this from actually starting the construction to turning on the lights with wind-driven power for the first time? Yeah, well, good, good morning. And uh, yes, we're really excited, actually, about the offshore wind project uh, that we're developing. We're actually doing it with a joint venture with RWE, uh, and we were delighted to have won one of the seabed leases which will actually allow us to produce around three gigawatts of offshore wind, which is enough to uh, provide electricity to over a million customers directly. Now, it's a major project, so it's going to take quite a while to do the development. We're expecting the construction work to happen in the second half of this decade. Uh, But hopefully we will have electricity to people's homes, both in New Jersey and in New York, uh, by the end of the decade. 
But that's not the only thing that we're doing at the National Grid in terms of the energy transition. Today, we're actually announcing a new vision for fossil-free gas. Uh, about 39% of all of the carbon emissions in the northeast of the U.S. come from uh, people burning fossil fuel for heating. Uh, and today, we're announcing a vision that sets out how you can replace that natural gas with renewable natural gas and hydrogen uh, to be able to provide an affordable uh, solution to customers going forward. Well, we've been talking a lot about both energy costs where you are in the UK, but energy costs in New England, as well as, as well as England, they were actually burning dung and wood in parts of January to make enough power to heat homes in the Boston and Connecticut areas. I hear things like renewable natural gas. You know people are going to roll their eyes at that phrase. What is renewable natural gas? Yeah, so quite simply, these, this renewable natural gas um, is produced naturally from things like food waste and from, uh, from rubbish. Uh, but you can also produce it from things like wastewater. So across, across the U.S., there's about 100 million tons of food waste every year. We've got about 17,000 water treatment plants and about 19,000 farms. All of them are producing renewable natural gas. And if you can capture that, and pipe it to where people need it, then actually it burns in exactly the same way as natural gas, but it's actually really good for the environment. And if you mix that with hydrogen, then what potentially you get is a fossil-free gas that people can use in their homes for heating mm. uh, and for cooking, and at a cost that is potentially significantly lower than if you just electrify everything. You know, if you electrify everything, then you're going to have to increase the size of the networks fourfold because four times as much energy goes through the gas networks as goes through the electric network. So potentially it's a, it's a real resource that we can use and do so at a lower cost for customers. Yeah. I'm glad you say that, John, because electrification is cool. But to your point, if we electrify everything, it's like trying to push a, a football, not a golf ball, football through a garden hose without massive improvements to the grid. I want to ask you about your home country. We were there in November. We were talking about uh, the coming energy crisis and electricity prices and things like this. Um, you are a grid operator, not a power supplier. So from your point of view, where did the problem begin? A 54% or whatever jump in power costs hitting April 1st, probably another one to the UK in October. If you look at the program from where you live, where did it go wrong? What happened? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a pretty challenging time in the UK at the moment. And, and a lot of it stems from, uh, you know, the terrible war that's going on in Ukraine. And, you know, we stand in support of Ukrainians uh, and all the actions that the governments have taken, we support. But what we've seen in the UK is, although the UK doesn't, isn't really that dependent on Russian gas, about 4 to 6% of our ga gas comes through pipelines from Europe, from Russia. Actually, the UK is exposed to European and world gas prices. So when gas prices have rocketed in Europe over the last period, then the UK is facing the same increases. So that's a real challenge for customers. So a typical customer in the UK has gone from paying about £1,200 a year for their gas and electricity bill to about £2,000, and that's likely to up again in October. So that's the challenge is that, you know, with the, uh, the concerns around Russian gas, UK is suffering from that. What they don't have is a security supply issue. So there is plenty of gas available. Uh, so there's not a security supply issue. Slightly different in Europe, where about 40% yeah. of their gas comes from Russia. And that's creating real challenges for countries like Germany. Yeah, it had been challenging, too, for a lot of people trying to pay it. And hopefully we've seen the worst of that energy and electricity inflation. 
John Pettigrew, National Grid CEO, really appreciate you coming on CNBC and Worldwide Exchange. Look forward to updates on that New Jersey, New York wind farm. John, have a great day. Thank you, sir. All right. You're welcome. All right. On deck. Tired of what's been a mostly brutal stock market this year? Don't worry. We have got some names hitting new all-time highs right now. Some names you might not expect. Plus, Capital Wealth Planning's Kevin Simpson on why one big bank stock may be a great inflation hedge for you right now. That name ahead. Stick around. All right, welcome back, everybody. Let's get back down to the markets and your money. And right here on Worldwide Exchange, we're all about opportunity. And while the markets have had a tough year, there are actually plenty of individual stocks hitting all-time highs. They don't get a lot of attention, but they've been quietly rocking. So let's make them unquiet, loud. These are new all-time or multi-year highs. You ready? Dollar Tree, DLTR, soaring. John Deere, despite higher input costs, DE, maybe on crop costs, rising. FMC Corporation at a new all-time high. Packaging Corp of America, PKG, rocketing, and PSENG. Yep, the utility as well, moving higher. All right, let's keep the opportunity going and maybe get some more names with Kevin Simpson, founder and chief investment officer at Capital Wealth Planning. And he joins us now, and we were talking about inflation, Kevin, earlier. And I don't know if you heard my analogy. I'll give it again. I say that I felt like the Fed is the coach of a football team that's down like 49 to 7 and suddenly decides that they need to actually play some football and try to catch up with some Hail Marys. Bullard talking about maybe a 75 basis point rate hike. How far behind the curve is the Fed, if at all? And how long do you think this kind of inflation will really last? Yeah, well, we know they're behind the curve. But again, you and I've talked about this so many times before. I'd prefer a reactive Fed more so than a proactive Fed. And I'm just glad you didn't give me a Twitter analogy. You know, it's been fun talking about Twitter for the past few days, but <laughs> that isn't going to help investors look at the inflationary environment or prepare for it. So the question is, you know, is inflation peaking? Are we in a recession? Are we heading into a recession? You know, Brian, the cultural zeitgeist of the moment is, aren't we already in a recession? Are we? I think we are. It really doesn't feel like it. I mean, prices are up, but consumers are spending money. Credit card data is up. Airlines are packed. I think sometimes it's a measure of semantics. You know, you just were talking about corn at a nine-year high. You're talking to teach us about energy every day. I was at a diner here in Naples the other day and talking to the owners about the price of eggs. Three, three and a half, four months ago, they were paying $24 for a case of eggs. Today, that same case is $96. So I think from a perspective of the individual investor, the person out on the street, they're looking at this and saying, you know, heck, I, I, think, we, I think we might be in a recession. You know, when you and I went to school, it was an easy definition. The textbook said, if you have two quarters of a depreciating GDP or a declining GDP, that's a recession. So I, I don't think it's going to be our great-grandparents' recession. I don't think it's something we have to be terrified of. But to your point, to the yeah. introduction of the segment, it also doesn't mean we can't make money and it doesn't mean there aren't opportunities. We just have to position ourselves not just to invest for an inflationary environment, yeah. but also a recessionary environment. You wonder if we'll have contracting GDP later this year, early next year, Kevin, to your point. We never know it until we were already in it and look back at it. I teased a big bank stock. Why do you think Goldman Sachs could be a good inflation hedge right here? 
You know, there was so much talk about rising rates and the financials going up, and they traded in the opposite direction. I mean, the stock came down almost 30% from its highs. But as we look forward, what's a real inflationary hedge? A real inflationary hedge is a dividend and an increasing dividend. So if we look at Goldman Sachs, their dividend growth is incredible. Yeah, they got, they got you got music, Kevin Simpson, but we appreciate you coming on. It's like the old thing, the, the big hook back in the 30s on vaudeville or whatever. But we appreciate the segment. We appreciate you coming on, Kevin Simpson, watching Goldman Sachs. Have a great day. Take care. Folks, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Stock futures are down. The weather is down. Oil prices are at 107. Grab a cup of coffee. Squawk Box is next. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.